0: Our sermon text this morning is Philippians 2 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, while you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to be men and women of your word, to be men and women who have your word day by day, hour by hour, coming into us and purging us, God, that we might see how horrible and dreadful our sin is, How horrible and how dreadful your wrath is towards sin. And how beautiful and lovely your son is. God, we come here week after week after week to sit under your word. And to be honest, we'd never hear much of anything new. But we come here to behold your glory. We ask that you would reveal your glory to us through your word. Amen. Presidential slogans have a very long history, and they have a very long history of also being very bad. There is just marketing has not been uh, a strong point of these candidates. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. There you go. It makes you think of Harrison, of course, back in the 1840s, of course, yes. Well, Buckham in 56, James Buchanan, perhaps the worst of the uh, presidential, of of the presidents ever, is far worse than anything we can imagine now. He just, okay, he just sleepwalks us right into the Civil War. Come on, what, what, what are you doing here? Okay, then after this you have a man who must be a socialist. He says, vote yourself a farm and a horse. Vote yourself a farm and a horse. Of course, it's Lincoln, that socialist. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Hoover in 1928, there's your American dream right there. And of course, much more recently, Let's Make America Great Again. You guys all know this. It obviously was used by Ronald Reagan in 1980. But perhaps the, the best one is, it's just smooth. It's I Like Ike. Dwight Eisenhower, 1952, and even had its own jingle, if you want to go listen to that. And it was inevitable. Inevitable that Eisenhower was going to be the president of the, of the U.S. if he wanted it. It was all his to take. All he, all he had to do was wait for um, Truman to finish up, who followed Roosevelt. Eisenhower comes in while the Nazis have their boot on the throat of Europe. And he comes in and he has this masterful plan to retake Europe. And it doesn't start in Europe, but it actually starts in North Africa. And they go through North Africa, and then they invade Sicily, and then in Italy. And then two days before, you have D-Day, you have tanks rolling into Rome. And this is all falling as he has planned it out. And then with D-Day, what you have, there's years and years and years of planning going into this. You can't just show up and wing it like... (laughs) I would do. And laughs. Um, you can't just show up. No, no, they got to take farms in England, turn them in the airstrips. They have to build landing craft. They have to build planes. They have, to, they have this brilliant game of deception. So Hitler's strength isn't actually right there. Then you have to wait for the right weather, the right, the right tides. And then, then you go years and years and years of planning all culminating in this one day years of planning to redeem Europe from the horrors that is around them all being executed and coming forth in that one day it's the same thing we see in our text what you see is Not just years and years, but eternity past. Working out and coming forward and then culminating in this one day. When Christ will come. And he comes and he takes on the flesh. So what I want you to see is that this sovereign lowliness... Sovereign lowliness has always been God's eternal plan. From eternity past, this has been God's plan to bring Christ in the flesh and to have him humbled and subjected to redeem God's people. How are we going to see that? Actually, during this Advent season, it was a Curtis's idea, it was a brilliant idea. We're gonna be looking at these this, these verses that we've read, that Nick read from Philippians chapter two. And we're just gonna take it a verse at a time. A verse at a time here. So this week we're gonna be looking at verses five and six. So this idea of sovereign lowliness so that it has always been part of God's eternal plan. What are you gonna see? Well, in the first part, well, we're we'll just looking at verse six. You're going to see Christ is in the form of God. Christ in the form of God. And then the second part of that is that Christ is not regarding this equality with God as something to be grasped. So even though he is God, he's not holding on to it. That's number two, is that he's not holding on to it. And then to fill it out, the third point, we're going to be looking at other scriptures. Genesis 3, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. To see this sovereign lowliness being worked out throughout the Old Testament and looking forward towards Christ. Let's go into the text here. Verse 6, look at this. Read with me. It's Jesus Christ who, though he was in the form of God, it's hard for us as mere mortals to comprehend the divinity of Christ. Everything that we think of has a starting point. Humanity It begins at conception. You plant, so you have them in your garden, and it starts when you put the seed in the ground, and then it goes from there. Even the relationships that you have are with people around you, they all begin at some point in time. They might go on for a long time, but they always have a starting point. As you look at your spouse, perhaps you can even, I hope, you can remember when you first met. There's a starting point. Like at a picnic table on August 19th, 2002. So when we contemplate Christ, what we we often do is lose sense of his eternal divinity. We can think of him coming in the flesh and then moving forward, but we don't often think that Christ has been existent from eternity past. That's what we lose sight of. It's easy to see him in the flesh because we are in the flesh ourselves. Even though we're flawed in our humanity, at least we have a category for which to have him in his humanity. But when we think of divinity in our natural self, what we do is often just take humanity and then go another step. This is what you have with the pagans. You, you have then this, these, They don't really have divinity, but they have all these demigods. So you think of Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, uh, so you think of Zeus, he can throw thunderbolts. So humanity, strength is good, someone who's really strong, okay, boom, then that's even better. What would be even, what would be awesome? Let's have him throw thunderbolts. Okay, you, can, you, you know, don't tell me some guy didn't think of this. You knew, you know, some guy thought of that. Same thing with Poseidon. He's in the sea, but he's confined to the sea. He doesn't tell the fish where to go. He's not in sovereign control over the sea. He didn't create the sea. He doesn't move the tides or anything like that. No, he can blow wind. He has a cute, you know, look, an awesome weapon, this trident, but he can blow wind and make storms. So when we think of divinity, we are oftentimes in our natural self limited because we look it through it with the, 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 the lens of humanity and just think it must be step two of humanity. But here is Christ in its whole new category of being eternally existent, being in the form of God. So you see here that Christ though he was in the form of God. Now, as you look at this clause here, we have a lot of time to just one verse, and so we're going to milk it out here. As you look at this clause, it's actually not the main point. It's, it's a participle. Joel will tell you it's a participle of attending circumstances. It's, it's this participle before the main verb. So it's laying the groundwork, What does it look like? What are the conditions under which this main verb, one of the main verbs, not grasping, what does it look like when he's not grasping? Well, it looks like that he's actually in the form of God. He was in the form of God. And so when we look at this was, what you can think then, was that he was and therefore he no longer is. There's really, it's hard to flesh it out unless you want to say something really weird, like he existed in the state of being, you know, or something like that. So, he was, and he still is, not just because you read that he was, it no longer means that there was some kind of ending to his divinity. He was in the form of God. He was existing in the form of God. I don't know how much... If Paul wanted to say that Jesus is God, this is exactly what he would say. He's not dancing around the idea. No, he's being incredibly clear. Jesus is God. He is existing in the form of God. God. It's, it's, there's two ways to, to look at that. It's the, the outward appearance. So you can say, this, the, the, in the form of God, in his outward appearance, as you, you would look at a king singing, sitting on his throne, you would say, how do you know he's a king? Well, because he's sitting on the throne. He has a throne. He has a scepter. He has a crown. And it's his outward appearance, then, that you would know this man is a king not so much that that's happening here, when Christ is in saying, that Paul is saying that Christ is in the form of God. Warfield writes, and in the form of God is the sum of the characteristics which make the being we call God. He is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is and to possess the fullness and the, of all the attributes that make God, God. So everything its not just his outward appearance, but it's the substance of who, who he really is. All of the attributes that make God, God, you find them in Christ. He is in the form of God. The very essence and fullness then, then, that makes God, God. Everything that makes God, God, you find in Christ. And in Christ, you don't find anything else. It's not this essence of God in Him, plus a bunch of other things. No, it's the fullness of God there in Jesus Christ. Beloved, we can delight in the divinity of Christ. That we don't have some demagogue who's just a human but a really, really strong human or anything like that. No, we worship a God. We worship a Messiah who has come to redeem you. Who has existed from eternity past. God has existed forever. Christ has been existing forever. And therefore, all of this plan of redemption has been going on forever. To redeem his people. Let's go on through the rest of the verse here. Even though he was in the form of God, what did he do? He didn't lord it over his people, but no, he did not count or he did not reckon or regard. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He held on to it. So what you have here with Christ is that he's not holding on to this. The very essence that he makes him up It's not external to who he is. It's the very substance of who he is. And he's willing to let go and to forsake it. Christ is a, he's existing eternally with God the Father. But you don't have to worry about it. Christ will not hold on to that. He will not lord it over his people. He will willingly let it go. And so you have this. What do you have? Okay, so Christ is unchanging. You see that in Hebrews three 13. He's been with the Father from eternity past. Jesus Christ is the same as yesterday and today and forevermore. And his eternal decrees are never changing. So if he's existing from eternity to past, and all of his words are not changing, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will endure forever. Therefore, you know, brothers and sisters, that God's eternal plan for you Is unchanging. This idea of sovereign lowliness, of Christ coming down, is not something that's just contrived. It's not something that early Christians who suffer want to make true so that they can feel good. No, this is the eternal plan of Christ doing the will of His Father from eternity past, coming down in sovereign lowliness. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this glorious? Have you ever doubted the love of God? How can you? We cannot doubt now the the love of God. My change my plans they change by 7 a.m. Like I can't. You're you're like getting here for the church, like you're, you're packed up and you're ready to go. And then one of the, the infant has a blowout as you're going out to the car. And like all of your plans are thrown out. or you try to save up money? And then the car breaks down. Like you, we can't really make plans. We can have good intentions, but we can't make plans. And here is God sovereignly planning for his son to come to redeem you from eternity past. This makes the incarnation that much more amazing. From eternity past, God has set his love upon you. Not because of anything that you've done, not because you've worked hard to obtain it. Nor then do we spend our life worrying. That we might lose this love of God or lose this salvation that has been given to us as part of God's sovereign plan. We can't undo the plans of God. And our Messiah, even though he is born in the form of God, did not regard this equality with God as something to be grasped. But he enters into the world. He's born of a woman. He's born of a virgin to carry out the will of his father. He says, I can do nothing. I can do nothing of my own will except for what I see my father doing in John 5. And his plan is to redeem all of his sheep. Not just of of one clan or one tribe. But of all the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And all creation. This is an eternal plan to have all of creation being united and finding its place in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So, yes, the Incarnation took place 2,000 years ago. That's when Christ came. But its roots go all the way back. Back to eternity past. So, brothers and sisters, when you begin to then contemplate the love of God, as one theologian says, know that the love of God for you, the love of God for you will never end because it never began. And there was never a point in which God started loving you. It's been going on for eternity past. Do you see the richness of God's love for you in Christ coming in the flesh? Jeremiah 31, he says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is towards the the Israelites, God's people. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Our doubts, any doubts you have about the love of God for you, provided you're in Christ can be wiped away. that Christ has been in the form of God and he doesn't regard this equality with God as something to be grasped. And it's not as though when he's when he's talking about being grasped he's it's not as though he's, he needs to sometimes they would translate it as, as robbery as though because the root word is harp like you hold on to harp to play and uh, it's not something to be held on to. He's going to just open it up. It's not as though he's trying to rob it. You might see it translated that at other places. No, it's already in him. and he's, But he's going to hold it open. All of this is rooted in our Messiah from eternity past. So maybe... Brother, sister, you come here spiritually dry. It's Advent season. You know you're supposed to whip up some cookies in spiritual fervor. And maybe you come here spiritually dry. Just let your heart be overwhelmed with the eternal love that comes to you through this sovereign lowliness of Christ and God the Father through their eternal plan of sovereign lowliness in our Messiah. How can you? How can you remain dry? How can your heart remain weak in your faith, brittle? Knowing that God has set his affection on you from eternity past, try to comprehend that there is no point in time in which God began loving you. He loves you so richly and so deeply So delight yourself in this eternal love. Meditate, take time. Delight in this. That's displayed not by Christ grasping at this equality he has with God, but coming here to earth to redeem his people. So, what we've seen so far is that Christ is Loving us, He was in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped and held on to. Because Christ is eternal, his plans are eternal. Therefore, God's plan to redeem you is rooted in eternity past, and his love for you is rooted in eternity past and comes into motion... It's another act of the drama when Christ comes and puts on flesh. Let's look at some other verses. that kind of fill this out. Go back to Genesis 3, if you want. Adam and Eve in the garden. They're able to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Unmitigated access to God, walking with Him in the cool of the evening. And Satan... So, tempts them. Satan, Christ, think about this. Christ is able to not hold on to his divinity. But what you see with Satan and with Adam and Eve is that they must grasp after it. As you read Milton and his paradise lost, it's, it's beautiful. and You see Satan again and again grasping at divinity. He's the one pursuing it. And that's the same thing you see with Adam and Eve in the garden. Is that they are the ones grasping at divinity. They can be with God, but that's not enough. They can walk with God in the cool of the evening, but that's not enough. They want to be like God. They want to have the ability to know both good and evil. Here's Christ not grasping it. And here's Satan and here's us in fallen humanity doing everything we can to go after it. here you see it. Go to verse 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is even before Adam and Eve are sent and cast out of the garden. They've sinned. And now they're receiving the curse. God is speaking to Satan here. he subsequently speak to Adam and Eve as well. But he's speaking to Satan. And you see the gospel very clearly coming out. That there's going to be this animosity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the son of god will come the son of the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent but in that act in the very act of crushing the head of the serpent the serpent will come up and strike him and kill him god's eternal plan is not a reaction to the fall How good of our God that he actually enters into this sin and just doesn't burn everything up, which he could have. He enters into them. He pursues them. says, where are you? Where are you? Pursuing them in the garden, in the midst of their sin. Just like for some of you right now, God is calling after you. Where are you? Where are you? As you hide in the shrouds of your sin from him. How good of our God. To come and enter into this brokenness. Not just in the incarnation, but this has been the plan from eternity past, and you see it even starting to happen in the garden before they're kicked out. Go to Psalm 22. So, what does it look like? What does it look like for the serpent to strike at the heel of the Messiah? Go to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you used so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, your fathers, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned and by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads and shake their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're mocking him. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Then they divided my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. So what it looks like for the serpent to strike the heel of the one who will kill death. You see it on the cross. As God's sovereign plan of lowliness from eternity past is working its way out But how is this different? Myriads of people, countless people have been crucified on crosses. This was not unique to Jesus. Sometimes they would crucify them and burn them at the same time. What's unique about Christ upon the cross? Another verse, Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there as well. With our time, we'll just go to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. What was unique about Christ upon the cross with this sovereign plan of lowliness is that Christ took the wrath of God the Father upon himself so that you can have peace with God. This is the good news. This is why we rejoice in it and we rehearse it week after week after week. Probably because it's not new to you, but because we need to be reminded of this good news. Week after week, day after day. That in the midst of our sin, God knows it. God still loves it. You try to hide your sin and pretend to be somebody else so that people like you. Think of a God who knows all of your sin. And just doesn't push it aside, but takes that sin, puts it on his son and delights in you. That's a good God. So he came in the flesh for the purpose that he might die. So therefore, you have the the birth of Christ and and the death of Christ inextricably tied together. You, You can't take them apart at all. So that by his death, you might have life. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Go back to our verse here. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Though Christ was in the form of God, again, not, in the, not as, as a, an adornment, not a, a fashion or the outward appearance, but the truest essence of who he is was God. In the same way, brother and sister, Let your godliness seep seep down deep into the truest essence of who you are. Not just externally, have a a godliness that's there for other people to see. But a godliness that seeps down into the true essence of who you are. What do you do when nobody else is around? When you know nobody else is going to see it, that's who you are. Some of you are remarkable, and you use that time to delightfully pray and commune with God. Some of you don't. Let your godliness seep down into the truest essence of who you are, not just in appearance. Number two, welcome this sovereign lowliness into your own life. If it was a plan of God to humble his own son, should we not expect this same sovereign humbling in our own lives? Christ did not regard equality with God as as something to be grasped. He, He let go of it. So, whatever your glory might be, whatever glory you might have, it's only earthly. Let go of it. Let God humble you. And you will see that this humbling of you is in perfect line with his eternal plan for you and for your soul. Let God humble you. Finally, we, we, we are right to delight in the divinity of Christ, that he has existed for eternity past. But let's also delight in his work as well. What we're tempted to do is that we see this glory of, from glory to glory, you see Christ dwelling in glory. You hear the rumblings of him and the prophets and through the law. In the Psalms. But then he comes in his incarnation. And then we have the the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. And then back in the glory. We have from glory to glory. We have all of this work of Christ. And what we want to do, especially this time of the year, is push everything else aside. Pull this incarnation part out. Put it way over here and say, isn't this lovely? Isn't this great? We don't want to be reminded, oh no, he had to die for your sins actually. We want nothing to do with that whatsoever. We just want to sing about being jolly and delight in Christ. But no, this part, his incarnation is right in here from glory to glory. Take the whole package, don't just pull this part out and make an idol of it. See how quickly that happens. From glory unto glory, delight in the full work of Christ, which can only happen when we realize That this eternal plan has come because we are wretched sinners. And we can't redeem ourselves. Nobody else can redeem us. Only God can redeem us. So this very moment. Let the whole life of Christ reign over you. As you submit to your humbled Messiah. Let us pray. God, you are so good to us. We, we, have, we, we deserve nothing, God. All we've done and all we've supplied is a sin that makes this glorious plan of redemption necessary. God, if we ever begin to doubt or if we cannot comprehend your grand love for us, God, let us delight in the divinity of your Son. Let us know that you have loved us from eternity past. And it will never end, for it has never begun. It has always been there, God. So as we go and engage the world, as we bring other broken families, our own families, extended family into our homes, God, let us delight in your love and let us display that love. God, humble us that we might glorify your son by replicating his humility and your plan for humility through your son to redeem all of your sheep, to bring them to you that we might worship you throughout all eternity. And all God's people said, Amen.